I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16. This is a two-part message. The first part of this message is verses 1 through 16. The rest will be the rest of the story. It's called the Lazarus file. This is the Lazarus file, part one. Many, if not most of you, have heard of Lazarus. May not know a lot about him, but you have heard of Lazarus. The story of Lazarus and Lazarus being raised from the dead is actually a story about Jesus. And just so you know, this is a different Lazarus than the one that you see in Luke chapter 16, who was in Abraham's bosom, as the Bible says, and the rich man was uh, across the great gulf asking for uh, favors as he was in torments. This is a different Lazarus. This Lazarus is from a family well known to Jesus. He had a sister named Martha, and he had another sister named Mary. And what we learn from the story of Lazarus is not just about the power of God, but about the timing of God. We're going to learn about God's clock, the way that He times things out in our lives. And really, it's more about us trusting Him than to get Him on our schedule. That's usually the way that we want it. We want God on our schedule, and if God doesn't get to our schedule, we feel like God somehow or another has let us down. Not so, not at all. We're going to find out that there was a man named Lazarus, and you talk about too late. It was really too late for him. But that'll be a surprise to you. You already know the story. This week, we're going to see the first verses 1 through 16 of John 11. Let's read the entire thing, and then we'll go back and work our way through it. Verse 1 of John 11, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, will, uh, and excuse me, after these things, <clears throat> he said, After these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, will he recover? Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest. 
Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Well, I've skipped a verse or two in there, but we'll get to them. That's quite a story. But it's just the beginning of the story. And there's some lessons to be learned from both parts of this drama, part one and part two. Here's the first lesson that we learn. There are those who are close to Jesus. I think that's one of the reasons I enjoyed your song so much this morning, Larry. It reminded me that there are those who are close to Jesus. It is redundant, but let me read these first five verses again. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you loved is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, for he is, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That's something, isn't it? He loved them. He loved being around them. He found friendship in them. He found companionship in them. There's so many things that we can learn from just these 16 verses. But for the simplicity of my own understanding, let's just stay with the friendship aspect of this story for now. First of all, Jesus has friends. I'll be a friend to Jesus. I used to sing in my little church when I was growing up. I'll be a friend to Jesus. Jesus has friends. In John 15 and verse 15, he said, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. In his earthly walk, Jesus did like we do. He accumulated lots of friends. He met a lot of people. And I'm sure he loved all, in fact, I know that he loved all people, but there were some people with whom Jesus became friends. He made a friend of Zacchaeus. He made a friend of a a man named Jairus. The disciples or the apostles were the friends of Jesus, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. They were all the friends of Jesus. These three Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were particularly close to him and he to them. Martha was such a servant that it's almost certain that Jesus had eaten in the home more than once. Martha had made those meals. She even complained about it one time. You'll recall this from Luke chapter 10 and verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Jesus had been in their home for a meal. Mary was the one that she was complaining about because Mary sat at the feet of Jesus to learn whatever Jesus might say, whatever Jesus wanted uh, her to learn. 
Then Lazarus was the brother. Lazarus was probably the one with whom Jesus had the most conversation, and that is purely speculation. That's just a leap of speculation. But it would make sense that Lazarus and Jesus would have a a good deal of, of conversation. I don't know what Lazarus did for a living, but we know that Jesus was a carpenter, so maybe they had some discussions about how certain things were to be built, or Jesus might have noticed a table in their home and say, I like the way you you uh, did that uh, dowel work or whatever it was that, that they may have done. But it's not, it's not a leap to say that probably he and Lazarus had a lot of conversations. Jesus was just close to the family. So when Lazarus died, <clears throat> it was personal to Jesus. I think that's important for us to realize that our lives are personal to Jesus. Sometimes we think, well, nobody cares about me. No one knows. God doesn't even know who I am or where I am, but our lives are personal to Jesus. Personal, very, very personal to him. Don't ever think, well, God's so busy with everybody else that he hasn't, can't think about me. No, your life is very personal to Jesus. Whether you're a Christian or not, your life is personal to Jesus. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that he knows the very number of the hairs on your head. That's how personal your life is to the Lord. So first of all, Jesus has friends. Let me go you a step further. Not only does he have friends, but he wants friends. Jesus is one who wants people to be his friends. It might seem a little trite, but He's a friend of sinners, and he wants sinners to be his friend. Matthew eleven nineteen, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Here's an interesting thing. I, a few weeks ago, I, I brought a series of messages. The title of the series was Fix Up My Church. And we looked at the seven churches in the book of the Revelation. And we pointed out on more than one occasion how today, in today's world, in today's church, the idea of cultural relativism seems to be far more important than biblical soundness or a a good testimony and representation of, of Jesus Christ. In today's push to get Jesus to be relevant to us, we forget that he's already made himself of no reputation. He's already become relevant to us because he made that relevance happen. Not because we make that relevance happen, but because he made it happen. Because of our sin, we couldn't become relevant to him. Because of our sin, we couldn't find a way to even approach him. Yet here's what Jesus did. He made himself of no reputation, and he came and he dwelt on this earth to die for our sins. How and why? That we might have a relationship, a relevancy with him. Jesus did that. He wants to be your friend. This is not something where, well, yeah, God maybe loves everybody else but not me. No, God loves you. In particular, especially God loves you. 
God has friends and he wants friends. And let me just say this. Jesus is your friend. Verse 12 and through 14 of our text of John 15. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So I guess the first question is obvious. Have you made Jesus your friend? Now that's, that's a relevant question. Have you made Jesus your friend? Have you done what he has commanded? I, I think if you're going to make Jesus your friend, you'd want to do what Jesus says. What has he said? Well, Jesus said, you must be born again. That, that means you must be born again. You must have a spiritual birth. Not your physical birth, but a spiritual birth. That's all part of being the friend of Jesus. He is your friend, but have you made, you made him your friend. You must be born again. Have you done that? Have, have, he, he said, repent and be baptized. Here's the question. Have you been baptized? You know what baptism is? Baptism is a picture of our relationship with Jesus. A lot of people talk about the modes of baptism, and we certainly believe in immersion here in the Baptist church. But I think a lot of times we forget the the vitality, the importance of baptism. Baptism is a picture of the death, of the burial, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he wants every born-again believer to be baptized. Not to be baptized to be born again, but to be baptized because we have been born again. Have you been baptized? Jesus said, come unto me. Have you approached Jesus with your life? Have you reached a point in your life where you said, okay, Lord, I'm alone and I'm with you. I want to approach you with my life. I want to be in a relationship with you. Every opportunity has been afforded to us to become the friend of Jesus. It's just up to us simply to make him our friend. I want you to be thinking about that as this message continues, because when it's finished today, I'm going to give you the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and to make him your friend. So that when songs like Blessed Assurance or whatever it may be, Shout to the Lord or whatever it may be, you are singing of and to about your friend, Jesus. Jesus had friends. So there were those who were close to Jesus, and they had come to a crucial time. No doubt, the death of Lazarus was crucial. Will you wait for crucial things? Will you wait for important things? The Timex watch people had a survey, and they asked people how long they would wait to take action. That's a funny-looking kid, isn't it? They ask on a variety of situations. Researchers discovered that we'll consent to wait 
13 seconds before we honk a car, at a car in front of us stopped at the green light. 13 seconds. How many of you will wait that long? No. Nah. I don't know who they were surveying. We'll wait 26 seconds before we shush people who are talking in the movie. We will wait 45, let's see, we'll wait 20, another 26 seconds before we take a seat that someone has walked away from. We'll wait 26 seconds on an average to see if they're coming back. We'll, <clears throat> we'll wait 45 seconds when somebody's talking on a cell phone too loud before asking them to tone it down a little bit. We'll wait 40. You ever been to an airport and somebody talking on the phone? <laughs> Not on a cell phone, but on a yell phone. They just, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, absolutely. Gee whiz. Or on an airplane. 13 minutes. 13 minutes is how long we'll average waiting for a table at a restaurant. 13. And 20 minutes we'll wait for the last person to show up at Thanksgiving before we start eating. <clears throat> That's a pretty good survey, I think. I like that. Here's a question. How long will you wait on God to meet a need in your life? How long are you willing to wait for him to answer your need, to answer your prayer? Do you panic if the need is not met immediately? Do you panic if it doesn't happen right now? Do you panic if it doesn't happen when you thought it should have happened? Well, how long will you wait for it to happen? George Mueller was one of the great prayer warriors of all times. George Mueller lived many decades ago. None of us would recognize him if I put a picture up there of him, so I don't put a picture up there of him. But he had orphanages all over England, and George Mueller, and, and Europe, and George Mueller prayed provisions in constantly. There was one prayer that he prayed. He's known as the greatest prayer warrior perhaps ever in this day. There was one prayer that he prayed that was never answered, and that was for the salvation of his brother. He prayed all of his life for the salvation of his brother. Six months after George Mueller died, his brother got saved and continued to live the legacy of faith. We have to be cautious about saying, God, you've run out of time. I will tell you this, that this was a crucial time in the life and times of the family of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, and it was a time that ended up being delayed. Verse 6 of our text is interesting. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. You have to know that Jesus knew about the condition of Lazarus. That didn't take him by surprise. Someone said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? He was not surprised by this. He knew the condition of Lazarus. But even knowing that Lazarus was about to die, Jesus stayed on another two days. Now, there's not a record of what he was doing during those two days. Was he just simply waiting to go? And then when the time was right, here's what Jesus said. Let us go to Judea again. He got the news two days earlier that Lazarus was sick to death. He waited two days, and then 
he said, let us go. Now, this is a lesson. This is a lesson for all of us who worry <clears throat> when things that, that need to work out <clears throat> do not work out in advance or even on schedule. I wouldn't ask you to raise your hand, but if I, if I were to do so, there'd be many of you who would raise your hand that say, I've got something in my life that should have already worked out and it hasn't worked out yet. Or I've got something in my life that I'm afraid is not going to work out on a timely basis. <clears throat> and we, we seriously doubt about the things working out. We already know the end of the story, but suffice it to say that with God, all things are possible. And whatever <clears throat> needs to be worked out in your life can be worked out in your life. It's too late. No, it still can be worked out into your, in your life. Interestingly enough, when Jesus was ready to go, then immediately he was discouraged. Verse 8, and I'm, I'm not sure that I read this when I was reading the text. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Twice before, the Pharisaical Jews had tried to stone Jesus. In John 8, 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. John 10 and verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. The disciples were not eager to walk back into that scenario, and they were genuinely trying to do what they thought was best for Jesus. So they tried to discourage him from going. <clears throat> you know, they're usually well-meaning people who try to tell us what's best. In fact, that's what we do. Instead of going to the Lord in prayer, we go to well-meaning people. And we get their advice. Now, is there anything wrong with getting people's advice? Absolutely not anything wrong with getting advice. But I will tell you this, that every piece of advice that any person will give you, including me, will be flawed advice. <laughs> it will be flawed because we have flaws. It will be flawed because we don't always know what's best. It will be flawed because we do not know the timing of God. But I can tell you this, whatever it is in your life that's discouraging you, if you'll take it to the Lord in prayer and continue to seek His Word and rest in Him, then you don't have to be discouraged. The disciples discouraged Jesus, but Jesus was determined. He answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of day. Now, I think this determination gives us some insight into the reason for the delay of Jesus. It was all about timing for him. Jesus is drawing closer and closer to his appointed time. And while it appears that one thing needed to be accomplished, there was something else to be done too, the greater thing, Christ's sacrifice for sin. Now, the emergency to everyone else was that Lazarus was sick or that Lazarus was dead. But on the calendar of God, it was the sacrifice that he would make on the cross for our sins. He deliberately <clears throat> delayed. Everything was on his schedule for his timing, for his mission, for our benefit. Everything was. And really, we should learn that. That God has a schedule and God has a timing and God has a will. And, and all that, that we can, 
hope for or expect is that God will work in his timing for his glory to our best interest. All things work together to them who love the Lord, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Here's what that means. God has a time schedule. God is on his time schedule. God has a greater purpose for his time schedule. And God is going to meet whatever need needs to be met based on his time schedule, and it will be perfect. Absolutely perfect. Meanwhile, everybody else was concerned. But Jesus was determined. He's drawing closer and closer to his appointed time. While it appeared that one need was to be accomplished, there was something else to do, and that was the sacrifice for our sin. Jesus was at the 11th hour of the time for him to sacrifice for our sins. So what do we see in this Lazarus file, part one? Well, there are people who are close to Jesus, and there are crucial times in life, all of our lives, and God is on a schedule during those crucial times, and sometimes those needs become very, very clear. There's no question about the imminent passing of Lazarus. It was huge. However, what everyone else saw as primary, Jesus saw as secondary. God's calendar is different than our calendar. Granted, we cannot see his schedule, so to us situations often seem beyond help. Now, I will tell you from a personal, pastoral position, or just being a a man, I will tell you that I have seen a lot of situations in time that appear to me to be beyond help. Well, I don't know what you're going to do. I don't think there's anything that you can do. I think this is just a mess, and I don't see how it's going to be fixed. There are a lot of things that appear to be beyond help. Lazarus has already died, and Jesus knows it. Martha and Mary know it, as do the rest of the villagers and the, <clears throat> the people of Judea. And the disciples do not yet know, as evidenced by the great exchange, this exchange between them. In verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. The disciples said, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and nap. Now it's amazing to me, or a rest and sleep. It's amazing to me how things get mixed up. Now I want you to think about this just a minute. For some reason, the disciples thought that Jesus was willing to risk being stoned to death in order to go and wake up a friend who was taking a nap. With my apologies to the disciples, well, how stupid is that? Oh, yeah, I know that they're out to stone me, but Lazarus, he's overslept. He is going to miss his appointments. And so we've waited two days hoping that he would wake up, but he's not awake yet. So we're going to go. 
and we're going to wake him up. No, Lord, you'll get stoned. Just let him sleep. Why would you go wake? That's what they thought, Larry. They thought he was asleep. Well, why do you go to wake him up? Well, sorry. (laughs) If you want to appreciate the long-suffering of Jesus, just look at some of the idiotic moments that he had with these disciples. There were plenty of them. For the sake of timing, Jesus had waited to go, and also so that the disciples and the others would believe him. What they thought was beyond help, he knew was there so that they would believe him. John eleven fourteen. then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Oh, you mean dead? Yeah, dead. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let's go to him. Anything God does is significant and has significance. Once in a while, he'll do something really, really big to boost our faith. As believers, we should always hope that God is going to do something. Hope is hearing the melody of the future. Faith is to dance to it. We should always believe that God can do something because God can always do something. And in this case, God was going to do something. You have something you need for God to do in your life? Do you have something you need for God to do in your career, in your family, in your body? Do you have something you need for God to do? God can always do something should he choose to do something. So we have to stay on his timing. In the Lazarus file, We find that there were people who were close to Jesus. We find that those people were at a crucial time in their lives and that there was a clear need that was about to happen. And we're going to end on this, and it's more confusion, the confused disciples. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Not only did Thomas miss the greater picture, he didn't see what was obvious. This miracle-working God had been following, he had been following, was about to do the ultimate. These are the same guys that were afraid when they were crossing uh, the Sea of Galilee and the big storm came and they said, oh, we're going to die. Oh, he sent us out here to die. And then Jesus came walking to them on the water in the middle of the lake where it's about nine miles deep. And they looked at him and here's Jesus. He's ready to save them. And then they scream again, oh, it's a ghost. These are some men of great faith who are our church fathers. This miracle working God was about to do something they really hadn't seen before. Yet he continued to have problems with doubters like Thomas right up until the very end. I want to ask you a question. I'm closing. Are you confused about why something hasn't worked out the way that you thought it should? Are you? Are you invested in the market and you watch the market go down the tank this, this week? 
And you said, oh, my goodness. What am I going to do? Has there been a problem in your personal life or a relationship that is just impossible? Is God trying to do something in your life? God is, and this is a a trite phrase, but it's very, very true. God is an on-time God. God's not early because he doesn't have to be, and God's not late because he's perfect. God is on time. He was late for me. No, he wasn't. You were early for him. We have to come to the understanding that it is God who is in charge and not us. If we were in charge, our lives wouldn't be a vapor. But our lives are a vapor. Some of you know, most of you know that, that I got a couple of friends I play golf with on Saturday. And one of them's name is Bobby. And uh, he is a very famous man here in Tallahassee and really around the world. But he's 85 now. Yesterday, as we were playing golf, there was a new cart girl being trained. They pulled up right beside our cart. And I looked over at them and I said, how are you all? Good. And I looked at the girl that was new and I said, have you met Steve Spurrier? (laughs) Here's what was really strange. She looked at me like, who's Steve Spurrier? (laughs) Bill Shifflett, that blessed my heart that she didn't know who Steve Spurrier was. But anyway, I said, uh, I said a few other things, joking around with them a little bit. They went on. And I got out of the cart to go and tee up my ball, and I looked at Coach, and I said, how soon do they forget? And he said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Our lives are just a vapor. We soon forget. We lose somebody so close to us, and we grieve so strongly and should. And then before you know it, it's been two weeks or three weeks or a month. It's been a year. It's been five. It's been 20-something years. Because our life is a vapor. What makes us think that God should move on our schedule when there's every reason to understand that we should move on His schedule? The key is not for God to get on the page with us, but for us to get on the page with Him. Have you made Jesus your friend? Have you gotten on the page with God about how things are working out in your life and should? Remember, it wasn't too late for Lazarus. It's not too late for you.